Friends, as we turn to Scripture, we must be aware that here in these pages we find a wisdom that is despised by the world. And yet these words are so wonderfully attractive to the children of God. For in these words we get to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And by gazing upon His glory, we are changed by His Spirit. Beloved, it is the gospel of the love of Christ that transforms us into a people who love one another as He loved us. And this display of God's wisdom through a loving community is for the sake of the nations. This is our corporate witness to a perishing world so that they might come to know Christ. Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that our knowledge of God and the gospel, both those things, ought to transform us from a self-serving people to a people who desire to serve one another in love. This is what freedom in Christ looks like. It is the freedom to live the life of Christ in His blood-bought community. So turn with me, if you will, in your copy to God's, of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where we'll get to see that there is nothing as precious as the gospel, nothing more important than Christ and His glory. And in light of this knowledge, we ought to be willing to give up our rights, give up our legitimate freedoms in order to love one another and build one another up in the faith. And freedom exercised in this way will require a well-informed conscience, a love for God's people, and self-control. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 27. But before we look at God's Word, let's ask Him for His help. Let's pray. Father, we pray that Your Word would now convict us of sin, turn our eyes to Jesus, cleanse us, and empower us by Your Spirit for every good work. Teach us to love like our Savior. May we each be like that man who found treasure in a field and after finding it in his joy went and sold all that he had in order to buy that field. Lord, for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, may we be willing to give up any earthly good so that your church would be built up, that we would serve one another in love, and that your name would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Any Christian, irrespective of his or her ethnicity or traditions, any believer who has tasted of the goodness of God in the gospel ought to be willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. So Jesus tells His disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Friends, this is what it means to walk in the obedience of faith. 
This is what it means to walk in love. Love is cross-shaped. It is defined and demonstrated for us at the cross. And all of this means that it's not enough to say that we believe the gospel, but that our lives ought to reflect gospel priorities. It should be shaped by the gospel. We ought to be joyfully, willingly, ready to give up anything that would hinder gospel objectives. Anyone who worships the one who was rich beyond all splendor must also, like him, all for love's sake become poor. Beloved, the love of Christ frees us to obey his word, to serve one another in love. And so you can imagine, you can imagine why Paul was concerned that some people who knew and understood this gospel were not being loving towards one another. This was going on in, at Corinth. Some of these members were eating food offered to idols in temples because they believed that an idol was nothing. They said that, look, Paul, there is only one true God, and He is the God who saved us in Christ, and He gave us the gift of knowledge. And because of this, these people said, we know, we know. We know and teach that idols are not gods. We know that food is just food. We are free to eat whatever we want, wherever we want. We are free even to participate in these meals at the idol's temple. But Paul writes to, to tell them that they were wrong in the way that they had understood and applied this knowledge. For one, they had failed to take into account that while idols were certainly not gods, yet demons were being worshipped at these pagan temples. You see, the food may have been religiously neutral, but the spiritual atmosphere was not. These Corinthians who championed the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols were putting themselves in great spiritual danger. How? By partaking of the table of demons. The problem was not with the food, the problem was the company, the communion. And secondly, in addition to putting themselves at risk, they were also endangering others. And once you do this, you are no longer dealing with matters of indifference. And Paul saw these as serious moral failures. These members were so puffed up with this knowledge that they failed to consider what effect their actions were having on others. There were some who did not understand and apply these truths about God to this situation in the same way that these well-informed and gifted Corinthians were doing. No, there were others who had weak consciences. Because of their pagan backgrounds, they thought that the food was actually contaminated because it was sacrificed to these idols. And so to them, eating the meat in itself was to participate in idolatry. And so Paul tells these proud Corinthians who were flaunting their liberties, he tells them, look, if these weak Christians see you eating and they are encouraged to eat because of you, they won't eat in faith like you. They believe that they're sinning, and so you are in, in effect encouraging them to sin. You are wounding their conscience and you're sinning 
against Christ. Your example, says Paul, puts social pressure on these believers. And because of you, they are being sucked back into idolatry. And if they continue in this way, they will make a shipwreck of their faith. Paul says, the way you're applying this knowledge can destroy your brother. Yes, you have the right to eat any food, but the spiritual well-being of your brother is more important than food. If food makes my brother stumble, says Paul, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13. But these puffed-up Corinthians also thought that their knowledge gifts had elevated their status above the rest. And so they began to champion their rights. And so Paul says, all right, you want to talk about rights? Let's talk about rights. Let's talk about what it really means to be fear in Christ, to, to be free in Christ, and why that should cause you to be greatly concerned about the dangers of idolatry. And so in these next 27 verses, Paul presents his own life as an example of how as an apostle he had given up certain rights and privileges for the sake of the gospel. And friends, the first lesson we can learn from this passage is that Christians often exercise their freedom, their freedom in Christ, Christians often exercise their freedom by giving up their rights, by giving up their rights. Paul begins by asking this congregation a series of rhetorical questions. Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 9. Verses 1 to 3. Am I not free? Of course he is. He's free in Christ, just like every other Christian. But the reason he asks is because there were some who were thinking, you know, this idea about not doing certain things for the sake of loving others, that feels like restraint. It doesn't feel like freedom. Of course, they had a cultural understanding of freedom and not a biblical one. Friends, have you ever felt like that? When the Bible asks you to do something and you feel restricted, restrained? If you feel that way about anything that the Lord commands, then that is a symptom that requires your attention. Sit down with another believer and examine your heart to see what aspect of the world or culture that you are loving more than Christ. Identify your idol. Flee from idolatry. Paul asks, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, he is. And yes, he had. Paul was both called and commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. You see, it's possible that some were saying, if this is Paul's position, instead of exercising authority, he seems to be limiting himself. Is he really an apostle? All this talk about giving up rights, what is that? You know, this is like a prosperity gospel congregation saying, well, the pastor is not throwing his weight around, and he's not super rich, 
Is he really a man of God? Paul says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. In other words, the Corinthians themselves were living proof of his apostolic ministry. You see, they had come to faith through the preaching of Paul, through the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Paul had planted that congregation. But friends, this also gives us a little idea of the resistance that Paul was facing in that congregation. There were some who were leading and causing divisions, calling a lot of attention to themselves and to their spiritual gifts, and Paul calls them arrogant people in 1 Corinthians 4.19. Now, being an apostle, Paul certainly had rights, but he had given up many of those rights for the sake of the gospel and ministry. Look at verses 4 to 6. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? The we here refers to the apostolic band. Remember, Paul's asking this question because of certain people insisting on their right to eat meat sacrificed to idols at the temple. Paul certainly had the right to eat and drink, but unlike these Corinthians, he was willing to give up that right if it caused a brother to stumble. But that's not all that he had given up. Look at verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? It appears that all the other apostles were married, including Peter and Jesus' brothers who were prominent leaders in Jerusalem. Now, there are obvious benefits to being married, and yet Paul was joyfully single for the sake of securing his undivided attention to the work of the Lord. Look at verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, this is interesting. It appears that this was a well-known fact among all that Paul and Barnabas worked to support themselves. But isn't it interesting the way he frames that question? The way he frames the question suggests that certain people look down on that. They look down on such an endeavor. Barnabas, if you remember from Acts, was a very encouraging man. He loved the Lord. He was a Levite. This was a man who came from a long line of priests who were used to receiving things from the people of Israel. But in the book of Acts, do you remember what he does? He gives away whatever he has to serve others. And then he worked to support himself. How very un-Levite-like. But oh, how Christ-like. What about Paul? Well, Paul was a highly respected Jewish rabbi, a rising star in Judaism. And he left all of that behind to work with his hands, making tents for a living. He went from scholar to laborer, something that the elite in, in Corinth would have looked down upon. You see, well-known public speakers in, in Corinth would, have, would teach, they would speak, they would teach, and then they would charge a handsome fee for their services. Now, that was something that Corinthian culture admired. And then there was Paul, working with his hands, like a common laborer. 
But that didn't mean that Paul did not have a right to be paid. And so Paul defends his legitimate right to be paid so that the Corinthians could understand that this was not something to be looked down upon. This was not something to be derided. It was a right to be regarded and valued. And as he does this, he first appeals to their reason, to the way things normally work in the world. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. If you serve your country, it's your country's responsibility to pay you, to take care of your needs and your family's needs since, you're, since you are putting your life on the line. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? It is expected that the vine dresser would benefit from his produce. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? A shepherd has this right. So Paul uses all these examples because that congregation would have understood them very well. But Paul doesn't stop there, did you notice? He won't be content to leave it there without grounding these rights in Scripture. So look at verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? In other words, there's enough common grace in the world to teach us that some things are just right. But lest you accuse me of worldly wisdom, I want you to know that this is in agreement with God's Word. That's what Paul says. Look at verses 9 to 10. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 to remind them of one of God's gracious laws. An ox that was treading grain with its hooves was, was allowed to nibble some of that grain. It would have been cruel to muzzle that animal. And Paul says that this was ultimately written for us, for the welfare of God's worker. See, Paul is like Jesus here. It's as if he's saying, if God allows the ox this right, will he not much more care for his gospel workers? See, that passage was meant to point beyond its immediate context to God's gospel ministers. That's what the Holy Spirit intended. It is right for the gospel minister to expect this care from the congregation. Notice that word, hope, in the text. The plowman should plow in hope. The, the thresher should hope to share. It would be foolish on the part of the gospel minister to hope for something that God did not tell him to hope for. And what exactly should he expect? Look at verses 11 to 12. If we have sown spiritual things among you, that's the preaching of God's Word and its application through correction and rebuke and counsel. <clears throat> if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? The obvious answer is no. It's not too much to expect that. That's a reasonable and biblical expectation or biblical hope to have. You know this. <clears throat> it is right for wives to expect that their husbands will deny themselves and love them just like Christ. 
It's right for them to expect that. It is right for husbands to expect that their wives will respect them and submit to them. It is right for a congregation to expect that their pastors will live godly and exemplary lives. It is right for godly elders to expect that members will submit to their Christ-like leadership. It is right for younger men to expect older men to disciple them in godliness. It is right for a member to expect that if I go astray, someone is going to come chasing after me. Expect the things that the Bible tells you to expect. That's the point. It would have been right for Paul to expect a salary. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And friends, it's here that we get to understand why Paul had refused to take anything from them, why he had given up this right. You see, it wasn't the case that no one was being paid. He says others were making use of this right. Did you know that? These eloquent speakers had many patrons in the congregation. And the way patronage worked in that culture was, was like this. And those of us from Asian cultures can relate. <clears throat> so in certain cultures, it's normal to give and receive gifts. This is how friendships and relationships are made and maintained. But often there are certain expectations tied to those gifts. There is an unspoken commitment tied to a gift. It places the receiver of the gift under obligation. And in, in such cultures, if you receive a gift, you are expected to reciprocate either immediately or later when the right time arises. This is how you accumulate wasta. And it's possible that rich patrons in the congregation were not only paying these impressive speakers to take care of their needs, but they were also securing their loyalty. After all, this is how people operated in that culture. You buy people's loyalty to secure your position, your advantage. It's for power and protection. And it's very possible that Paul saw some of those dynamics in the church, and he decided that he would rather forego his right to remuneration than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Friends, this sort of thing happens even today in many churches where certain wealthy members will buy expensive gifts for the pastor so that the pastor will look the other way when it comes to their sin and also to secure positions of leadership in the church. Such acts are despicable and sinful. They are obstacles to the work of the gospel, like Paul says. See, Paul would rather forego his pay, but that doesn't mean that congregations should not pay their pastors well. And so once again, he reminds these members how under the old covenant, priests who ministered in the Lord's service were taken care of very well. Look at verses 13 to 14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service 
get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Numbers 18 verse 7 says that the Levites, the priesthood, the priesthood of Israel, was God's gift to His people. And He told His people to take care of them, to meet their material needs as they ministered spiritually to the people. Verse 14, in the same way the Lord, that's Jesus, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Jesus says this of His disciples in Luke 10 verse 7, the laborer deserves his wages. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 5 verses 17 to 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That's a monetary term. It means double pay, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So, if the Lord commanded it, here's an interesting question for you. If the Lord commanded it, does that mean that Paul was being disobedient to Jesus by refusing a salary? That would be problematic, wouldn't it? But if we look at these passages, even verse 14, when the text says the Lord commanded that pastors be paid or elders be considered worthy of pay, the command seems to be for those who should be paying them. That is the congregation. Paul certainly had that right, but he joyfully gave it up. Look at verses 15 to 18. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Paul certainly knew these Corinthians well, didn't he? He's saying, don't see this as some sort of veiled request for a salary. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. In other words, this is so important to him that he not get paid so that he can make much of something. This is the good kind of boasting. Now, what does he want to make much of? Preaching the gospel? Not really. Look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. So that's not the reason. For necessity is laid upon me. I do it because I have to. I'm compelled to do it. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Like the prophets of old who felt compelled to preach because they were called and couldn't help but preach, so did Paul. The prophet Jeremiah said, If I say I will not mention him, he's speaking of the Lord, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot, I cannot, I have to preach. Paul says, I'm not boasting in my calling. Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. It's not like God showed up and said, hey, Paul, are you free? You think you can make some time for me? You think you can do this? And then Paul replied, hmm, let me, let me think about it. 
and therefore I deserve a reward. Paul says, that's not what happened. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not, of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. God called me and God commissioned me, says Paul. He didn't ask for my opinion. End of story. When God tells you to do something, you do it. And there's something about his divine calling that you can't help but do it. You love doing it. Paul says, he is my master. I am his steward. This is my responsibility, my duty. I will give an account. I'm entrusted with the stewardship. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Here's my reward, says Paul. My reward is that I get to give up my rights. How do you like that? And I love it, he says. The gospel is greater than my rights. Not causing my brothers to stumble is greater than my rights. And I will boast, I will make much of this reward. What's the point of his argument? See, Paul is saying, if I can give up my salary and rejoice that Christ and my brothers are worth it, then you can give up eating sacrificial meat in the temple. See, that's the whole point of this argument. You can give it up and you can rejoice. It's worth it. Do it because you value the gospel more than anything. Do it because you sang, Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. Do it because you love Jesus. Do it because you love your brothers and sisters. Brothers, what legitimate right of yours are you willing to give up to build up a weak member? What legitimate joys or pleasures or privileges would you be willing to give up for the sake of the kingdom? This is not a call for asceticism, to ground your standing before God on the basis of how much you can give up. No, it, it is a call to loving service, grounded in your rock-solid justification. This is about giving up your rights to love a weaker brother. If your brother has a particular misgiving about some food or some drink, let's say pork or alcohol, if he believes wrongly that he is sinning by consuming them, if his conscience is weak, then yes, he does need to be taught rightly so that his conscience might be strengthened. But if you have the slightest notion that this brother or sister may feel pressured into eating and drinking with you, even though he or she thinks they're sinning, then don't do it. Don't have it in their presence. You can give up your right and love them in that way. He needs to come to a right understanding, but not by way of social pressure. They need to be convinced by Scripture patiently taught and explained by you, explained by you who are stronger in the faith. Otherwise, his actions won't be honoring to Christ. 
But friends, there are also other ways we can give up legitimate things out of love, which has nothing to do with a weaker brother, but everything to do with serving the body. Beloved, this sort of attitude lies at the heart of regular, cheerful, and generous giving. When believers know that they have a right to enjoy good things to the glory of God with their money and yet give those up so that they might generously support the work of the ministry. When they're doing that, they're serving in love. We give up in order to serve in love. And that brings us to the second lesson we can learn from this passage. Christians exercise their freedom by becoming servants. Christians exercise their freedom by becoming servants. And here Paul tells us his objective. His objective. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all, he is free in Christ, slave to no one except his Savior. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, servant to all. This is something that Paul willingly did, and here's why he did it, that I might win more of them. Now, what does he mean by winning more of them? What did that look like? Well, look at verses 20 to 23. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Notice that he doesn't say, to the Jews, I became a Jew, but became as a Jew or like a Jew. This is important to note because Paul was converted from a Jewish background, and Paul clearly saw his identity as a Christian. And so to win Jews, he had to become like them, like them. Now, what does that mean? Well, look at the next verse. To those under the law, this is the law of Moses, the old covenant that the Jews were under, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Again, Paul makes his Christian identity clear. He's not under the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. He is a new creation in Christ. So what does he mean when he says he became like them? He means he gave up his freedom. He gave up certain rights and accommodated himself to eat certain foods or restrain himself from eating certain foods and to follow certain custom that had its roots in the law. He did not think that he needed to do so in order to become a Christian, but he was willing to give up his freedom, his right to eat certain foods, if that would pose an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He did it to gain a hearing, to gain a hearing. So think about that time in Acts 16, verse 3, where he takes Timothy and circumcises him just so that he can accompany Paul to Jewish territory. There was a time when he also did this with the Gentiles. Look at verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Wait, is he saying he sinned like the Gentiles? He became lawless? No, keep reading. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. He also accommodated himself to Gentiles. 
Verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. He's talking about Christians with weak consciences. Don't forget the context. The reason Paul is getting into all of this is because he wants these right-insisting Corinthians to see that to be truly free in Christ means giving up your rights for the sake of the gospel. I have become all things to all people, meaning Jews, Gentiles, and those in the church, that by all means I might save some. Now we know this is the right way to read this text because of the summary verse at the end of chapter 10. So, so look ahead at chapter 10, the last verse. Chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense other than, other than the offense of the gospel and its demands. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Saying the same thing, isn't he? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Come back to chapter 9, verse 23. Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them. Well, who's the them? He's talking about the believers he's giving up his rights for, that I might share with them in its blessings, in the blessings of the gospels. And by, by this he means the salvation blessings of the gospel, that the eschatological glory, the end times glory and reward that await all of those who endure till the end. And brothers, this is about enduring to the end and not falling away. Do you remember what Paul said in chapter 8, verse 11? He was concerned that the actions of certain believers were causing the weak to be destroyed or fall away because of their continued participation in idolatry. And Paul says, I will gladly give up my rights because I love these people. They are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Really? The church at Corinth? Some of these guys were sleeping with prostitutes. Some of them getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. One guy is committing incest. incest. Some people keep dragging other people to court. Some guys with really big heads think that it's cool and hip to eat food sacrificed to idols at the temple. Seal of my apostleship. I mean, why not the church at Smyrna? Right? Jesus says some nice things about those guys. That's who I'd want to take credit for, the church at Smyrna. But Paul says, you are the seal of my apostleship. He loves them. He's not ashamed of the weak. You see, Paul is like his Savior. And beloved, Paul's attitude ought to convict us if our love for one another has grown cold. Love is patient. It bears all things, endures all things. We ought to have the heart of the Good Shepherd. Don't despise the weak. Jesus said, what do you think? What do you think? 
the man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Do you have that kind of love? You see, that's what that word win means in the text, that I might win some, that I might win the weak. To win them is to gain them, is to stop them, prevent them from continued idolatry so that they may be saved, that is, endure till the end. That's what the word win means. It means to profit, to gain an advantage. So think of Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother listens to you, you have won your brother or gained your brother. You've won him. See, this passage is not primarily about missionary strategies and contextualization. This is about giving up your rights so that the weak brother may not go astray that they may be one. So many scholars and missiologists take this passage out of context and they take it to mean that we must contextualize the gospel message. Take the truths of the gospel and then repackage them in ways that the culture can grasp and accept. There are churches in India where people will light incense and the pastor dresses up in a, in a saffron gown like a Hindu priest. They take communion with coconut water. They leave out parts of the gospel message that talk about sin. They talk about the gospel as a spiritual awakening, reawakening. Concepts that that culture can understand. But that's not the gospel, is it? That's just baptized Hinduism. That's not what this passage is teaching. If it were teaching that, it goes against everything that Paul has said so far. One commentator writes, Paul did not tone down his assault on idolatry to avoid offending idolaters or to curry favor with them. His accommodation has nothing to do with watering down the gospel message or soft-peddling its ethical demands or compromising its absolute monotheism. Paul never modified the message of Christ crucified to make it less of a scandal to Jews or less foolish to Greeks. No, this is about giving up your rights to gain a hearing, to love your brothers, to build them up in the faith. Yeah, but what about my desire to eat? Paul says, brothers, have self-control. Have self-control. Look to the cross. Trust in its message and the Spirit will produce in you the fruit of self-control. Beloved, do you remember the message of the cross? How the King of glory humbled Himself and became all things to all men. How did He do that? By taking on human nature. He did not throw His divine weight around or exercise his kingly rights. Philippians 2 verses 6 to 8 says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, this is my right, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you think the Son of God had rights? Oh, he has every sovereign right. And yet we hear this from the lips of Jesus. Foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, the King of Glory became a servant to serve those who could not save themselves. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you know this Savior? Do you know this King? If you don't, you can come to know Him today. If you repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. And if you do, if you believe that He died for your sins and rose again from the dead, then you can receive a right. You can receive a right by grace. A right that you do not have by birth. The right to become a child of God. That's what John says, doesn't he? In John chapter 1, he came to his own. His own did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. You can receive that right to be called a child of God, forgiven, beloved in Christ, safe and secure in him for all eternity. Turn to Christ if you haven't. And for those of you who are in Christ, if you're strong in the faith, then praise God, but also know that such knowledge comes with duty. The duty to love. Romans 15, verses 1 to 3, 1 to 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Paul says we are called to serve like this for the sake of others, and that requires self-control. And that brings us to the third and final lesson we can learn from this passage. Christians regulate their freedoms by exercising self-control. Christians regulate their freedoms by exercising self-control. You see, just as knowledge without love is arrogance, just as knowledge without love is arrogance, love without self-control is self-centeredness. See, both love and self-control are the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit of Christ produces in us as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, as we grasp and understand the love He has shown us on the cross. This is what those proud Corinthians failed to grasp, and so Paul gives them an analogy. He gives them an analogy to help them understand that if they fail to love like this, if they fail to love like this and they keep on insisting on their rights, they will not endure till the end. Look at verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now you have to understand why he uses this analogy. 
These puffed up Corinthians were so confident about their status that they were exercising their freedoms much to the detriment of others. Just because you're in church, just because you're baptized, just because you take the Lord's Supper, doesn't mean that you will endure till the end. Paul says, run in a way that you might obtain your prize, that you might be glorified, that you might get to participate in that eschatological glory that we all look forward to. Think about those who participate in sports, says Paul. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Everyone understands this. Everyone appreciates this. Everyone praises this. And we've seen it too. Athletes work very hard. They work very hard, don't they? They train from morning to evening. That takes discipline. They have to give up eating certain foods. Right? They have to give up eating certain foods. They have to eat other foods instead. They don't have time for parties and barbecues. This takes self-control. They're careful about how they sleep, when they sleep, how long they sleep, what kind of supplements they take. We've all heard the phrase, no pain, no gain. It's a slog. And why do they do it? What motivates them? Look at the text. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. They chase after earthly glory. And in Corinth, Athletes would be crowned with a wreath made out of leaves. And how long do you think that's going to last? It's perishable. It will decay and die. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul says we ought to exercise self-control for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's eternal, everlasting. Verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. There's a direction. I have a goal. I do not box. Now he speaks of a boxer. I do not box as one beating the air. Paul says, there's a point. There's a purpose to what I do. I'm not like a boxer who just hits the air. I'm not like a guy who cannot land a punch. That would be really pathetic, wouldn't it? If you saw a man in a boxing ring and he couldn't even land one punch, just beating the air. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, when Paul speaks of disciplining his body and keeping it under control, he's referring to his desire, his appetites for legitimate things. In other words, you should be self-controlled enough to say, you know what, I'm not going to eat this meat if it will make my brother stumble. That kind of restraint, that kind of restraint is not aimless. It's loving. The punch has landed. Paul says, if I don't do this, I disqualify myself. You know, if a runner disqualifies himself, all of us know what that means. 
you're out of the race. You're out of the race. And that's a warning to these proud Corinthians who were not running well. If Paul the Apostle says, I need to be careful lest after preaching I disqualify myself, how much more should these Corinthians take care? How much more should we take care? Friends, this is another way of saying if you continue in this way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You disqualify yourself. You will show yourself to be faithless and never in Christ to begin with. So, beloved, how are you running? How are you running? Are you running aimlessly without being considerate of others? Running aimlessly without being mindful of the spiritual state of others? Running aimlessly without gospel priorities or gospel objectives? Or are you landing the punch? Are you landing the punch? Or are you clinging on to your rights? Are you fighting the good fight of faith well? Are you exercising your freedoms to the glory of God? Brothers and sisters, run. Run that you may obtain the prize. And beware, lest you be disqualified. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as needy children. And we ask, O oh Lord, for your help, for the power of your Spirit to do what you have called us to do. Help us to live lives worthy of your calling. Lord, we pray that we may run this race well together. That we would not be aimless, clinging on to ourselves, clinging on to our rights. That we would not be the center of our worlds, but that we would look to Christ. That we would turn our eyes to Jesus so that the things of this world would appear foolish and fade away. Help us treasure the gospel. Help us treasure Christ and help us treasure one another. Help us do this for your glory in the church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.